the LexisNexis Environmental Law and Climate Change Community Podcast. Presentations and interviews with leading attorneys and industry professionals. On this edition, Bruce Passfield of Austin and Bird. On the role of the Chemical Safety Board and other governmental agencies in chemical accident investigations. The opinions expressed by guests interviewed on LexisNexis Legal Podcasts do not necessarily reflect those of Reed Elsevier Incorporated, LexisNexis, subsidiary companies, shareholders, employees, or customers, and should not be considered legal advice. Bruce Passfield is a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Austin and Bird and has a national practice in environmental litigation after serving as one of the nation's top environmental prosecutors at the U.S. Department of Justice. Mr. Passfield defends a wide variety of clients in criminal, civil, and administrative enforcement actions for alleged violations of federal or state laws. In addition to enforcement and litigation defense work, Mr. Passfield provides Fortune 500 companies with permit and compliance counseling on environmental and energy matters in the U.S. and around the world. He's a vice chair for the Environmental Enforcement and Crimes Committee of the American Bar Association, as well as a member of the ABA Oil and Gas Committee and Renewable and Distributed Energy Resources Committee. He recently moderated the teleconference Chemical Accident Investigations, What to Expect from the Chemical Safety Board, the EPA, and other governmental agencies. Mr. Passfield, thank you very much for your time. The roles of the Chemical Safety Board and the EPA and OSHA and other organizations. Talk about chemical accidents and what happens once there is one. Well, the Chemical Safety Board has a specific mandate to investigate specific incidences involving uh, an accidental release, and that's defined by statute. So you, you look to that first, uh, at least in terms of the degree of severity and the Chemical Safety Board is looking at accidents that involve injury or death uh, involving a member of the public or not, um, death or injury of an employee, spills or, or releases that cause a public evaluate, uh, evacuation, property loss, obviously environmental damage, health and safety issues as well. So those are all things that they're going to be looking at when they decide whether there's been a, an accidental release, and that's partly devised by statute. And there's a specific list of hazardous substances that are within the Chemical Safety Board's purview, and uh, they're going to look at those. So in terms of a very specific area that they're looking at, they have this mandate to look at accidental releases of chemicals that result in death or serious bodily injury or where there's a lot of environmental harm. More broadly, you know, you're going to have chemical releases or chemical spills at plants that don't have that degree of harm, but you're still going to have a response to them. So, uh, you know, very generally, it's, it's one of degree. You know, you, you have your releases that are relatively minor that are going to be handled at a lower level, and then you're going to have your very serious spills that uh, are serious accidents that the Chemical Safety Board is going to look at. So other organizations would probably be involved before the Chemical Safety Board. Yes, that's, uh, that's a very good point. I mean, when these incidents first happen, you don't have the Chemical Safety Board coming out and showing up. Your first people that are going to show up on the scene are 
typically is going to be your fire department. Uh, if there's an explosion and any type of fire, they're going to be the, the ones out there first responding. You're going to have your, if there's any uh, injuries to people, you're going to have ambulances and paramedics, and you're, you're likely to also have the police department, a local police department, and then again, depending on the severity of the explosion or release, uh, you're going to have state fire marshals and, and uh, state police coming out as well. So those are typically the first people that you're going to see at a, a chemical accident scene. And it's kind of interesting, the Homeland Security protocols really kick in at the local level. So when, when they show up, there's something called an incident command system, and they're supposed to put that into play you know, right from the get-go. Now, the Chemical Safety Board came out of the, uh, the 1990 Clear Air Act amendments, right? Yes, that's right. 1990 Clean Air Act amendments, and it took a while to really get up and running, but right now they have about 16 investigations going, and uh, they are more prominent in the United States in a host of different geographic areas and for a host of different uh, industries that have had these chemical accidents. So how does the government initiate and conduct a chemical accident investigation? As I mentioned, there's a, you know, the state and local people are out first and first responding to a, a scene. And it's interesting. It's, it's a really a hierarchy of different agencies that come out. I mean, they're going to be the first ones out there because they're local, they're closest. But you're also going to have, believe it or not, the FBI and the ATF, Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms Bureau, out at the site, especially in, in large-scale incidents, because there's the, the concern about terrorism. And they are going to screen the site for potentially whether or not it, it was a terrorist act involved. And they're going to be pretty quick. I mean, they're going to be out there when they hear about this and, and responding pretty quickly, too. So, so those are the first people that are likely to be out at, at a chemical accident site. Well, each organization plays a role in such investigations, but I would think the Chemical Safety Board's role may not be as well understood as, say, the EPA or OSHA. No, it really, it really isn't, and it's probably, in the final analysis, it's, it's, it's the most important role because they are looking for the root cause of the accident, and I think most people would agree that you want to prevent these accidents from occurring in the future, and that's their mandate is to go for that root cause analysis. But it takes a while to get to that point, and there's a lot of activity from a lot of other agencies that takes place before the CSB really kicks into high gear in terms of going for that root cause accident. So, you know, when you look at these things from the 10,000-foot level, you have this flurry of activity where you've got a multitude of agencies coming out to the site, Chemical Safety Board being one of them, but uh, you have a company having to respond to not only the local and, and state uh, authorities, but federal government authorities at the same time, as well as political leaders and, you know, potentially community activists. So there's, there's, there's a lot going on when you first uh, come upon one of these scenes, and it can be pretty undaunting for a company, you know, faced with this in the, in the first circumstance. What are some of the other things that can go on before the CSB gets involved? Well, if you follow the Homeland Security Directive Number 5, uh, which was implemented, I believe, in 2007, the federal government and state and local governments, to a large degree, have to follow what's called the National Incident Management System, or NIMS. And the way that works, to some degree, you start off with an incident command system where it's the premise is the first on the scene is in command of the 
situation. So if, if the local fire department's the first on the scene, then they really take on the role of the first responder and are in charge of that situation until an agency with greater authority comes on site and greater resources comes on site and a decision's made to turn over that authority to a higher level. So if you look at the Gulf situation right now, that you know it's it's not necessarily a great example, but you know the Coast Guard was the first one on the scene and first federal agency on the scene. Of course, you're not going to have any state and local out there right away, and they've more or less maintained that lead role because they were the first ones there. But there are a lot of other agencies that have gotten involved in that response, and once you have a larger degree of agencies involved or a multi-agency system, then you go to what's known as a unified command. And the unified command involves the uh, one command post where you have agencies all operating out of the same place, and they're all reporting through the same chain of command to a what's known as the operation chief. And that's the person designated to coordinate all the activities, but it's a rather flat command structure. So you know, for example, if you have a, a chemical accident release and, you know, you have the local fire department on scene first, but at some point the environmental protection agencies out there with their on-scene coordinator, they could be designated as the lead agency in charge of the overall response action, and then uh, activities will flow through them. It could be the FBI, depending on how the uh, investigation shakes out, but that that whole system is supposed to be in place and followed as the first 24 hours of this uh, response takes place. Is the CSB involved with the Gulf oil spill? Uh, no, that's an interesting point. Their their mandate is not to investigate marine spills. That's uh, specifically delegated to the National Transportation Safety Board. They do have a memorandum of understanding with NTSB and, and also with OSHA, and the objective is not to duplicate efforts. So. Um, in that case, they've 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 not stepped into that. I think you mentioned earlier the the CSB is investigating what about 16 incidents at this point. Is that right? Right. They have 16, 15 or 16 accidental releases that they're investigating as of today. Well, then how does the CSB determine which chemical accidents to investigate? Yeah, that's a really good question, and there's no real fixed criteria for that. Largely, it's based on resources. They have, you know, a staff of about 45 people. They've got two offices, one in Washington, D.C., and another in Denver. And with 45 people, you can imagine you're really limited by your staff to the number of investigations that you can conduct. And I think they're fully employed right now, so to speak. All of their staff is is actively investigating these cases. So they're not really in a position to investigate maybe more than 20 at one time. And that's going to dictate a lot of where they can go. But I said before the factors that they're looking at, these are really going to be left for the the incidents that involve really major explosions where there's a death or there's a, a public evacuation of a facility or a community. And they also look for uh, the potential for consequences. So if even if the spill wasn't uh, or the release wasn't one that resulted in a lot of harm, if it had the potential to do so, they may choose that one as opposed to other ones. Or if there's a, a degree of learning potential, if you're talking about an industry that has a high degree of chemical activity at the plant and 
there's a potential for improving the way they are handling those chemicals and to improve safety. The learning potential is something that they may uh, look at when deciding where to put their resources. And then what are some of the things the CSB does once they come out to an accident investigation? Whenever they do one of these investigations, they write up a report. Now, they can write up a report that doesn't make any specific recommendations if they don't feel that any are necessary. But more typically, they are going to write up a report that has recommendations that will go to either the Environmental Protection Agency or the Department of Labor, basically OSHA. And that's by statute. They have to, uh, when they write up a report and make recommendations, they, they are supposed to submit those to EPA and, and OSHA. And then EPA or OSHA looks at those recommendations. They have 180 days to make a decision about whether or not to, A, follow the recommendations and institute a rulemaking or some type of order that implements the recommendations, or B, not follow them. And so really the idea here is for the Chemical Safety Board not only to find out the root cause of the investigation, but then to take it a step further and say, okay, we know what caused this accident. Here's what we think could be done better to minimize this type of accident in the future. And the agency, here's our recommendations for what you might want to do to to implement our recommendations. Are there any changes in chemical accident investigations being initiated by the CSB? Oh, sure. They're involved in a number of different circumstances where they have made recommendations for changes to regulations. I know one that that they were looking at pretty closely was uh, involving dust from primarily as a result of the imperial sugar explosion a while back. So they're looking for combustible dust uh, or changes to the combustible dust regulations. So it's, it's pretty typical for them to get involved in that and then to stay involved as that process is continuing. And so once they do get involved, they are working closely with the, the other agencies like OSHA and EPA? Yes. After those recommendations are out, they're working closely to you know, monitor uh, where the agency is in terms of implementing the regulations and you know, providing support as that process goes forward. I imagine there are some ways for counsel to prepare for and respond to an investigation. What tips might you have uh, or, or what would you recommend? You know, it's it's one of those things. You don't ever really fully anticipate one of these situations. I mean, it's it, it would be very hard to really do that unless you have a, a, a drill ahead of time that really goes through all of the processes that happen when one of these accidental releases occurs. And if you, if you haven't done that, again, it's it's very hard to anticipate all this. It's a little like a three-ring circus, and I don't you know I don't mean that comically, but you you just have so much going on from the get-go, and it's very hard if you haven't prepared ahead of time to really stay on top of things. But some of the things you can do, you know, again, I, I would stress, you know, you need to prepare for this ahead of time. So if you're a facility that's dealing with or that has a lot of chemicals and the potential for a significant release, you need to have thought through this ahead of time because there's not a lot of time to react when, when it happens. But some things that you can do, you know, to start off, you immediately want to, from a, from a legal standpoint again, because uh, that's where my expertise is, to get a document preservation memo out there. So when there's been a release, you want to let your employees and, and everyone else know, you know, keep things as they are. You know, we want to be able to look at what kind of communication was going on immediately before the accident and what documents might be associated with the release. 
Another thing that is really hard to keep track of but that you need to try and do are all the changes that might have been made to an affected area. You know, when the fire department comes in or the police department comes in or even when EPA comes in to do their response action, they're going to be moving things around. There's just no way to avoid that. And if you're not keeping track of that, the scene can shift on you and you may not know where valves were set how things looked and where things were at the time of the accident. So you want to try and recreate that the best you can so you know things where things were before the accident happened. And that will really help you with your subsequent investigation. Digital cameras are a wonderful thing. Yeah, digital cameras are... You, you definitely want to have, have one of those, but I think you have to be careful with that, too. You know, you, you want to have a, similar to the government, you want to have a unified command structure here. You don't want to have people running all around trying to respond in different ways. You want to try and have a, you know, a one-person command that is really dictating where things go out from there. And, that, and that's, again, hard to do in a situation where you've got all this chaos at the, at, at the onset. You know, most facilities in this day and age, they're going to have emergency procedures in place. So I think if you don't have those in place, you're really in trouble. But most facilities are going to have emergency procedures in place, and you're going to know what to do in that situation. But once that initial emergency has, it doesn't dissipate, but once you've gotten people cleared of the situation, you know, you've got everybody away from the release and have responders there to start, that's when it becomes probably even, even more chaotic because by that time you're going to have the local press there. You may even have politicians showing up and you have all these responders in place and you're trying to make some sense of that situation and it becomes difficult to really think through what you're going to need in terms of, you know, document preservation, scene preservation, and doing an investigation into what happened. Those things are really hard to concentrate on when you have all this other stuff happening at the same time. Yeah, I imagine. Well, is it possible to be too prepared or over-prepared? I, I really don't think so in, in these situations. I mean, if that if that were to happen, that's a pretty good thing. And, uh, you know, a company should be commended if they find themselves in, in one of these and, and are overprepared. Any final thoughts on the role of the Chemical Safety Board and its interplay with uh, some of these other agencies? Well, I think the, the thing to consider from a legal standpoint is the Chemical Safety Board is going to be interviewing witnesses and they're going to be asking for a lot of documents and again they're going to be doing a root cause analysis all that information is eventually going to be shared with the public and the only opportunity that a regulated entity a company has to really comment on that is at a time when they finish their report and they want the company to screen the report for any confidential business information uh, obviously, they're not allowed to issue reports that have confidential business information, so before they release them, they do provide a company with an opportunity to screen the report. But it, what it points out to me is that you're basically allowing them and giving them a lot of information that's going to go out into the public, and you have to understand that all that information is going to be reviewed by EPA, who's going to bring not only response action, but they're going to bring a civil enforcement action if they find violations of 112R under their general duty clause, violations of OSHA's general duty clause, and then potentially criminal violations that would be brought by the Department of Justice. And 
you need to understand that the information that you're providing them is going to be made public. And you don't necessarily have control over that, but you, you do need to understand that it's all going to go out there and you have to have some mechanism for making sure that the right people are providing information and that you're communicating with a voice for the company that is informed and not providing uh, piecemeal information. And you're certainly familiar with the workings of the Department of Justice, having spent a, a few years there. Oh, yeah. I, I would say that when I was with the Department of Justice, we would really wait to a large degree to let the Chemical Safety Board and OSHA because they have a six-month window on issuing their citation for one of these incidents. So they both have to move pretty quickly. And we would a lot of times just sit back and wait and see what they came up with. And then once we understood what they were looking at, then we'd come in and we'd have some expert assessment of the root cause and, and go from there. Now, we could not, at the department, we could not make use of the information in a chemical safety board report. It's not something that you can present to a grand jury or use as evidence in a criminal case. But certainly, the findings are something you can read about, and then you can use that information to develop your own leads and develop your own evidence that would uh, form the basis of a criminal case if if that's warranted. So, you know, I guess knowing how I use the the reports and the chemical safety board information on, on that side, you know, it's pretty critical to understand that from a company standpoint as well. well Mr. Passfield, appreciate you taking the time to talk about the role of the chemical safety board and the interplay with other governmental agencies. And I thank you very much for being part of this LexisNexis legal podcast. Thank you. Bruce Passfield of Alston and Bird. Thank you for listening to the LexisNexis Environmental Law and Climate Change Community Podcast. Visit all our communities at www.lexisnexus.com community. The LexisNexis Environmental Law and Climate Change Community Podcast, copyright 2010 by LexisNexis, a division of Reed Elsevier Incorporated. LexisNexis, total practice solutions. I'm Steve Bursler. Thanks for listening.